Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. I'm Kristen. And uh, if all goes according to plan, our last podcast dealt with feminism. And how feminism is kind of a confusing topic these days. No one really knows what a feminist looks like, what feminists stand for. And today we're going to kind of go into the history of feminism to kind of explain how things got so confusing. Mm -hmm. In the last podcast, right, we focused a lot on what it is today. So we're going to go back to one of the first movements that probably comes to mind when you think about feminism, and that is the suffrage movement, Um, when women... American women campaigned to get the vote. And the suffrage movement was born out of anti-slavery and temperance movements at the time uh, because women were barred from participating in a lot of the social organizations that were pushing for uh, the abolition of slavery and temperance. And in 1840, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott tried to go to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, but the men who were running the event said that they couldn't participate because they were women, and that that got them angry. It got them angry, and... You know, this was one of the first times women kind of got angry about that. At the time, women had very little control over their lives. They're having seven children. They weren't going to college or university. And so the abolition movement really had provided the first chance to kind of get out of the home. And when they were rejected from that as well, they had to do something about it. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Right. And at the Seneca Falls Convention, uh, they penned the Declaration of Sentiments. And this is the first document outlining the need for equality among men and women in the United States, including voting rights. And from there, the suffrage movement really starts to take shape. But we should know that these are just movements that are taking place in the United States. You know, these were sort of the first actions in the United States that could be considered feminism. But the idea of feminism is actually borrowed from Europe. In France, the idea of male and female equality really took shape during the French Revolution. And from there, we borrow the term feminism, uh, which came to the United States and was in use by around 1910. But not all suffragettes would actually label themselves feminism because at the time there were two distinct things. Suffragettes were fighting specifically for the right to vote. No more, no less. Whereas feminism included equal rights across the board, financial independence, and transforming the relationship between the sexes. It was a far more revolutionary idea. So that's the idea that kind of, from what I understand, Kristen, goes dormant after women get the right to vote and kind of stays dormant until the 1960s. Right, because you have... uh splintering among groups of of suffragettes who aren't comfortable with fighting for more uh, feminist agendas, if you will. And it wasn't really until after World War II with the women's liberation movement that you have the next large-scale organized feminist movement. Not to say that during the World Wars, women weren't doing a lot of things. You know, we have women, uh, since the GIs were off fighting, a lot of women were leaving the home and working in larger numbers than ever before. Educational opportunities were opening up for women. Um, and that all led up to the 1960s and the women's lib movement. 
Rosie the Riveter. Yes. Br- brings us to the 1960s, mm-hmm. our next big movement, women's liberation movement. And the issues at this time are basically domesticity, employment, education, and sexuality. Right? Right. Because after World War II, all the men came home from war, and it was a revival of the cult of domesticity. You have the rise of household consumerism and uh, all these highly educated women who were feeling trapped at home. So what we have out of that feeling of being trapped, uh, there was a very prominent book we discussed in the last podcast, The Feminine Mystique, and the author Betty Friedan and other prominent feminists comes together uh, to form the National Organization for Women, or NOW. And this is probably one of the most famous feminist organizations. Mm-hmm. And this was this was comprised largely of older, college-educated, predominantly white women. There were some some men involved in it as well. Um, but it really, it seemed like it, in the beginning it really catered to middle and upper class women. Right, and they were pushing for access to the birth control pill, uh, abortion rights, equal employment opportunity, uh, reduction of domestic violence, and they start holding feminist conferences. It's sort of, uh, I guess, probably what we all think of as the glory days of feminism. And it, while all of this is going on, uh, younger people are also getting energized because of the civil rights movement and more radical protests against the Vietnam War. And it's among this younger set of feminists that you have uh more radical splinter groups that aren't necessarily associated with the National Organization for Women who are protesting more more in your face about uh, women's rights and uh, sexual freedom and all of that. And one of the most prominent events associated with that is the protest by the New York radical women against the 1968 Miss America pageant. And this is really where the idea of feminists being bra burners comes to light. Yeah, so this is a really interesting story. It's 1968, Miss America pageant, and along the Atlantic City boardwalk, the New York Radical Women's Organization, you know, throws this big protest where you throw everything that represents uh, submissive females into a bucket. So we got bras. Got, I think, kitchen utensils. Playboy. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things that just, you know, spell out the fact that women have been enslaved by men, to use a radical word. Right. And they were, they, they were planning to light this on fire as, as a symbol of them getting rid of all these, um, all these things that were holding them back. But the Atlantic City police weren't too keen on a giant fire on the boardwalk. So they never ended up doing it. And not a single bra was burned that day, but right. somehow, the the media got word of what was going on, and the next day, it was feminists are bra burners. They're taking off their bras. They're burning them, and it never never happened. Never happened. Equal rights never rose like a phoenix from the ashes of burning bras. Uh, but this is just the first of many splinter groups that come out of this 1960s 1970s movement. Now, as we mentioned, Molly, uh, National Organization for Women was focused a lot on these older college-educated, predominantly white women. And black feminists at the time, some of them felt marginalized by this movement because they felt like the, the, the issues that white feminists were focusing on didn't take into account working class and minority women. And you have to remember that at the same time, you've got the civil rights movement and the black power movement going on as well. And... I think a lot of black women at the time felt very conflicted about 
where they should place their allegiance because it's either, you know, you have more male-led black power movement, but then you've got white female-led women's lib movement. What do you do? And so out of that comes uh, black feminism. Right. And I think an interesting thing that came sort of around the same time was this idea of womanism. I think we mentioned this in the last podcast Uh, as a term coined by Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple. And it was to sort of um, bridge the gap between white feminism and black feminism, where we could all just be women in this society, look at the problem holistically instead of just looking at things that are unique to separate parts, not seeing the forest for the trees. Right. And uh, I think, as we also mentioned in the last podcast, Black and white feminists did work together on a, on a lot of different feminist issues, uh, but it was through black feminism that you have the rise of organizations such as the National Black Feminist Organization and the National Alliance of Black Feminists that really focused on what feminism means for black women and the issues surrounding them. So as we just mentioned, one of the things that got thrown into those big buckets they wanted to light on fire in Atlantic City were Playboy magazines. And that kind of leads us into the next uh, sort of movement in feminism. Right. Uh, Molly is referring to the feminist sex wars. And one of the platforms of second wave feminism was combating sexual violence and anti-porn feminism that arose in the late 1970s perceived pornography as a form of sexual violence against women. One of the quotes from anti-porn feminist Robin Morgan was, pornography is the theory, rape is the practice. And so anti-porn feminists wanted to outlaw all pornography because they felt like it was a violation on women's bodies. Yeah, and they really just saw all sex, all heterosexual intercourse as a form of male domination. Uh, it must be totally altered in a way that it's not harmful to women. And, you know, that's one thing, but that sort of uh, didn't sit well with everyone, especially women who thought that what feminism should stand for be equal rights in an act such as sex. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about um, outlawing sex just because, you know, the man might enjoy it. It was about making sexual freedom and sexual pleasure available to all. So in response to the anti-porn feminist, you've got the sex positive feminist uh, or pro-sex feminism that kind of comes out of this movement in the 19, late 1970s to dominate the early 1980s. And uh, among these feminists, you have people such as Betty Dodson and Gail Rubin, who really wanted to reclaim sexual intercourse as something that a woman could enjoy. And today, sex-positive feminism has evolved outside of the bedroom um, to include also the sex industry, including porn and prostitution. Right. Sex positive feminists would just say that prostitutes are earning a living, that it's there's nothing wrong with that. They're not being degraded. It was their choice. That would be sort of how a, a pro-sex feminist would view that choice. Mm-hmm. They can take it as a form of personal empowerment because they are financially supporting themselves. Exactly. Now, uh, the last sort of evolution of feminism we're going to talk about only brings us up to the early 90s, but it's probably one of the... Um, you know, most famous movements to come out recently, and that's the Riot Girls. This was happening in specifically in Olympia, Washington, and Washington, D.C., and grew out from that. And in the early 90s, you have the daughters of second-wave feminists who might be feeling uh, a little lost. Uh, their, their mother's brand of feminism might not be seeming quite as relevant to them because now you the pill has been around for a while. Roe v. Wade has been around for a while. Um, but you still have a lot of issues such as rape and sexual violence that are still affecting women's lives. So what do you do with it? 
So what these women do, these daughters of the second wave feminists, they find a way to blend together music, art, and consciousness racing into sort of a unique ba- brand of feminism. They um, take to these male-dominated music scenes where all these, you know, bands are fronted by male front guys and start forming their own bands and publicizing themselves and their ideas with these homemade magazines called zines. And in, in essence, all they're communicating is this sort of do-it-yourself punk rock values that encompass what they consider the new feminist ideas. Right. Uh, Riot Girls was very grassroots. Um, two of the bands that really helped promote the Riot Girl movement uh, were Bikini Kill and Bratmobile. And it was actually Alison Wolf and Molly Niuma who uh, were the front leaders of Bratmobile who started the zine called Riot Girl that the movement borrowed from. And it's very gritty, you know, it's it's do-it-yourself, but that what they were doing was facilitating these weekly meetings to discuss what they thought were the issues, such as rape, racism, and body image. Um, they wanted to talk about sexuality very frankly and, you know, reclaim these negative stereotypes about who owns a woman's body. And an interesting thing about Riot Girls is that they never wanted it to become a mainstream movement like women's lib. In 1992, when national news outlets picked up on the trend and started writing huge cover stories on it, the Riot Girls declared a media blackout because they didn't want it to dilute the effect of this this pretty powerful grassroots movement. Right. So, yeah, that brings us up to today. Right. So where are we today? Um, before we came, Kristen was showing me with her savvy web skills all the places that feminism can be found online, which is really kind of where, you know, like most things, the movement has moved. Mm-hmm. I would say that the blog community is really one of the, the primary places for feminist communities right now. You've got blogs such as Feministing and Broadsheet on Salon um, that are really powerful forums for, for feminists today to talk about pertinent issues. I think one of the problems with the web is because, you know, everyone has access to it and everyone can sort of put their own brand of feminism up. That's sort of what leads to confusion about what the term means, which is what we were discussing last time. Mm -hmm. So that can either be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. You know, if you've got a keyboard and an Internet connection, you can put your own brand of what feminism means to you on the web. And on the flip side of that, one of the the debates that's been raging, I'd say, in the past few years is whether or not uh, feminism really exists anymore and whether or not it's even a useful term. So, yeah, because as you can just tell from today, we had about five movements, none of which really subscribe to the same theories or ideas. Right. But uh, I will tell you, Molly, I was on I was scrolling through feministing today uh, before we we started recording. And I just noticed that uh, the resounding theme, I think, of all the conversations with feminists today, and I think that it will always be this way, is, is the idea of choice, mm-hmm. um, even though women might take different perspectives on it and want to tackle choice from different angles at the end of the day. I think that's what feminism is really all about, whether that's choice uh, dealing with the pill or abortion or sexual violence or workplace equality. All of that has to do with the single issue of choice. Okay, that's a good note to end on. So if you want to learn more about feminism, you can exercise your choice to go read How Feminism Works and also Top 5 Feminist Movements both articles written by a very young Kristen. Uh, they're all at HowStuffWorks.com. And if you have a question or comment for Kristen and me, just email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. 
Are you?